I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. As you know, I usually drop episodes every other Monday. This episode, however, was released a little late because I've been sick with a nasty cold. I apologize for the late release and the fact that my voice still hasn't fully recovered from being sick. On November 12, 2013, it was sunny and warm in Silver Lake, California, even though it was fall. The day probably started out like any other for 78-year-old Joe Gatto, who lived in a modest home where he created artwork, jewelry, and tended to his garden, among other hobbies he enjoyed in his retirement. By the evening, however, a day that began typically would end tragically with a single gunshot. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Joe Gatto. Trendy, hip, artistic. Brooklyn coolness in a sunny California package. Silver Lake is an expensive neighborhood in the east-central region of Los Angeles, California. Artists flock there, foodies in droves explore the abundant dining options, and many celebrities call Silver Lake home. The city is diverse, eclectic, and above all, authentic. Walking through town is like browsing through an edition of Architectural Digest. The houses are as interesting as they are large. Floor-to-ceiling windows overlook landscaped vistas. Silver Lake offers some of the best of L.A. living, with close proximity to Hollywood and downtown L.A., 
along with incredible hilltop views, independent boutique shopping, and an increasingly popular dining scene. Most of the hotspots are clustered along the iconic Sunset Boulevard, which runs through the lower half of the neighborhood. At its center is a man-made reservoir which gave Silver Lake its name. The joke among Angelinos is that Silver Lake is where rich hipsters move when they have kids, thanks to the good elementary schools. The area is quiet and safe, with very little violent crime, and murder rates far below the national average, which is why the events on November 12, 2013, shook the Silver Lake community to its core. 78-year-old Joe Gatto lived peacefully on a quiet street in sunny Silver Lake. He lived in the same house in which he raised his three children while teaching art in a nearby school. Joe was very creative, often passing his days making jewelry, browsing garage sales, and working on his website, a project he picked up in later years. He was a longtime and beloved member of the community, and Joe's passion for gardening was admired by his neighbors. In the spring, after the last frost, he'd plant heirloom tomatoes and pass them out in bushels to neighbors once they were ripe. Joe's kids lived nearby and would visit him regularly. His son, Mike Gatto, was elected to California State Assembly, something Joe was extremely proud of. Joe's daughters, Mariana and Nicole, were also a great source of pride for him. Every Wednesday night, Joe had dinner with his daughter, Mariana Gatto, and her fiancé. On Wednesday, November 13, 2013, when she didn't hear from her father, Mariana went over to Joe's house to check on him. She knocked on the door, but there was no response. Mariana unlocked the door and let herself in. She proceeded to walk through the house calling her father's name until she got to his bedroom. There, she found Joe slumped over in front of his computer. Mariana began to panic, initially thinking her father had a stroke or a heart attack. The room was dark and messy. Joe was a maximalist. He loved his stuff. It was hard to tell what was going on. As Mariana inched closer to her father's body, she noticed blood seeping from his abdomen. Joe didn't have a stroke or a heart attack. He'd been shot. Joe lived on a small and quiet street. There were only three homes on the entire street, but the neighborhood was tightly packed and densely populated, so he had many neighbors just around the corner. Both homeowners who lived on Joe's street were out of town on the day of Joe's murder though other nearby neighbors were around at the time. According to witnesses, at around noon on Tuesday, November 12th, a sedan, possibly a Toyota, with two men inside, sped through the neighborhood. The car made a U-turn at the top of the street and then drove back down. Four hours later, Joe's nearby neighbor, Gil Evans, left his home for a night shift gig, as he'd been doing for about two weeks to shoot a commercial. The sun set at about 5 o'clock that night, about an hour after Gil left for work. An hour after that, around 6 p.m., Joe was spotted leaving Costco in nearby Los Feliz, where he bought a new printer. He arrived home shortly after. About 40 minutes after Joe was spotted leaving Costco at approximately 6.40 p.m., another one of Joe's nearby neighbors heard a pop that sounded like a firecracker. This tracks with the fact that the weapon used to kill Joe was a small-caliber handgun. The noise startled the neighbor, so much so that she ducked around her house and attempted to call her neighbor for help. 
The Los Angeles Police Department believe that around this time, the unknown perpetrator crouched next to the car parked on the side of the road and then broke the window. The car was messy with cash and checks inside, but hidden from view. Following the car break-in, a man who is believed to be the perpetrator was confronted by two community members, Marina and Ben. Based on Marina and Ben's account, the man began to calmly walk toward the community stairs and then brandished a blue or black-colored gun at Marina and asked Ben, do you want to die? Ben and Marina then jumped into Ben's car and pursued the man to the bottom of the stairs, but a truck blocked them, making them lose sight of him. A few minutes later, around 6.50 p.m., Diane Evans, who lived in close proximity to Joe, left her house as she regularly did at this time to take her son to a guitar lesson. She returned home around 8.15 p.m. At approximately 7 p.m., the caretaker for another one of Joe's neighbors, an 80-year-old with dementia, went home for the day as she did each night around that time. Although one of Joe's neighbors reported hearing a loud pop around 6.40 p.m., investigators discovered that the last activity on Joe's computer was almost an hour later, around 7.37 p.m. Police remain unsure if the computer activity was initiated by Joe or someone else. The suspect who'd confronted Marina and Ben with a gun had very nice shoes, high-end foreign-looking clothes, and looked to be Eastern European. The suspect had a slender build and was in good shape, like an athlete. He appeared young and was dressed like a teenager. He seemed calm, neither running nor rushing, and appeared sober. Are you ready to plead guilty to running your own successful business? You can with Shopify, the all-in-one commercial platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify simplifies commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling indoor plants or face moisturizers, Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. With Shopify, you can customize your online store to fit your brand, find new customers, and build the relationships that'll keep them coming back. Shopify covers all of the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person point of sale to an all-in-one e-commerce platform and even social media. Thanks to their 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify removes the guesswork and helps you succeed every step of the way. Every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you can too. This podcast started as a passion project, and now it's my full-time gig. I love that Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, whether it's clothing or branded merchandise. Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. You're able to manage orders, shipping, and payments online right where you are. And when you're ready to bring your idea to life, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. It's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash murderish, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash murderish to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash murderish. I have so many unused monthly subscriptions that I forget to cancel. 
When I see the statement every month, I always think to myself, I need to cancel that before the next billing period. And I almost always forget to do that. The other day, I wanted to get rid of one of the billion streaming services that I'm subscribed to, and it took forever just to get to the point of final cancellation. They ask you so many questions, and right when you think you're done, they ask, are you sure you want to cancel? I know I'm not alone in this, and that's why I love Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. Rocket Money is the app that shows all of your subscriptions in one convenient place and cancels the ones you don't want for you. Rocket Money has made things so much easier for me because they find subscriptions that I didn't even know I was paying for, or worse, that I've been double charged for. It's a one-click process with Rocket Money. All I have to do is press cancel on an unwanted subscription and they take care of the rest. Cancel unnecessary subscriptions with Rocket Money today. Go to rocketmoney.com murderish. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com murderish. Born in Colorado in 1934, Joe Gatto moved to Silver Lake with his family after World War II. He attended Fairfax High School in Los Angeles, where he was an athlete and lettered in four sports. Following high school, Joe served in the U.S. Army, stationed at Fort Lewis in Washington. He graduated from California State University, Los Angeles, with a bachelor's degree, and later earned a master's degree in education from Pepperdine University and another master's degree in design from Cal State LA. He was the first in his family to graduate from college and earn advanced degrees. In 1968, Joe married Azolda Plendel at Boston's Holy Trinity Church. Azolda was a graduate of Pierce Secretarial School in Boston, and she later attended UCLA. Joe and Azolda had three children together, a son and two daughters. A decade later, the family moved to the Silver Lake neighborhood. At that time, Silver Lake wasn't as gentrified as it is today. It was a pretty diverse neighborhood of Los Angeles, with people from all walks of life calling the area home. True to its reputation, the city had a strong art scene and classic bohemian feel, but with much cheaper rents as development was slowed to this part of LA. The area served as a space where members of the LGBT community could express their identities freely, despite taboos of the time. Joe was a dedicated father who worked three jobs to support his family. He was vibrant, creative, and eclectic. He was an artist who loved music and enjoyed nearly every genre from classical to bluegrass. Joe was a man of many hobbies and talents. Among them, cooking dinner for his family, restoring antique furniture, photography, painting, speaking Italian, and making his own preserves, sausage, and liqueurs. And Joe was an avid reader. It seemed there was nothing Joe couldn't do. He often traveled to exhibit his uniquely handcrafted jewelry in museums and shows. On any given Saturday morning, you could find Joe at a garage sale. He had an eye for found objects. He was energetic, loved a good political debate, and could go on and on and on about almost anything. He was an accomplished writer who authored many textbooks on subjects like photography, drawing, design, and the art of cities. His books were used in classrooms from Canada to Texas. One of Joe's books, Exploring Visual Design, is currently on its fourth edition. Joe was also known to be an environmentalist well before it was popular and was active in his local Catholic parish, Our Mother of Good Counsel. 
1985, Joe co-founded L.A. County High School for the Arts and served as dean of the visual arts department until he retired at age 67. He also taught at Otis Parsons and Art Center College of Design. During his 50 years in the classroom, Joe inspired thousands of students. He was presented with the Bravo Award as California Arts Teacher of the Year in 1986. A couple of years later, he was even honored at the White House. In 1990, Joe received the California and Pacific Region Art Educator of the Year Award. It's clear the man with many talents was highly regarded professionally and personally by his family, community, and colleagues. Joe Gatto's murder didn't make sense for many reasons. He was an elderly man who didn't own a gun. The neighborhood he lived in was considered safe. Joe had no known enemies and wasn't massively wealthy. It didn't seem likely that the perpetrator was after Joe's money or valuables, though officers believe some jewelry may have been stolen from the home on the day he was murdered. Other than that, all of his money and belongings were intact. Police say it appeared the home had been ransacked, though people who knew Joe say that his house often looked a bit messy. Murders certainly weren't common in Silver Lake, but break-ins weren't unheard of. Police determined that Joe's murder was a consequence of home invasion, robbery, or burglary. But the Gatto family were not convinced. They wondered why a stranger would enter Joe's home and shoot him. What was the motive if not money or valuables? It just seemed too random. An investigation revealed there was no forced entry, which led some to believe that Joe knew his murderer. A few days after the crime occurred, police released a rendering of a possible suspect. The same man was also a suspect in a separate assault near Joe's Silver Lake home nine years previously. No suspects had been apprehended in that case. Later in the week, as neighbors were reeling from the news of the homicide, Joe's longtime neighbor, Gil Evans, said police told him that the murder was not a random crime. According to ABC News, Gill claimed that police were saying they believed Joe's murder was targeted, that it was planned, which is in contrast to previous statements law enforcement made about the case. According to Evans, the family wondered if Joe knew his killer. Neighbors speculated that his death may have been connected to a recent onslaught of car break-ins, specifically to an incident that neighbors say happened on the day it's believed that Joe was shot referring to the reportedly armed man who confronted Marina and Ben and asked Ben, do you want to die? In the weeks that followed the murder, 60 LAPD detectives were assigned to Joe Gatto's case. A day after law enforcement recovered physical evidence from the crime scene, more than 100 police officers raided homes around Silver Lake in search of the suspect. According to KTLA and CBS Los Angeles, LAPD officers as well as parole and probation agents, went to 84 different homes of ex-convicts and probation violators who had a history of burglaries. Officers arrested 12 people for parole violations and guns were seized from their homes. However, no new leads in Joe's case were uncovered after the raid. Months later, the Los Angeles City Council voted unanimously to offer a $50,000 reward for information connected to Joe's murder. Meanwhile, conspiracy theories started to percolate. It's estimated that the majority of murders are carried out by people close to the victims. 
so it was no surprise when theorists began to point fingers at the Gatto family. Joe's son, Mike Gatto, is a California state assemblyman and lived just a few blocks over from his father at the time of his death. Some people speculate that politics had led to Joe's murder. Mike Gatto admits that he does have enemies, and he wonders if his father's death was a targeted political play. After further investigation, however, detectives dismissed that idea. Mike Gatto has, for the most part, also let go of this idea. Though, as he explained in an exclusive interview with Murderish, it's only natural to look inward and want to assign blame to yourself. Others believed that Joe's daughter Nicole could have had something to do with her father's murder. Court documents reveal some of the tensions and divisions in the Gatto family that preceded Joe's death and apparently continue to this day. In the months leading up to his death, Joe Gatto reached out at least six times to friends and family about disinheriting his daughter Nicole from his estate. According to a 189-page declaration Mike Gatto filed with the Los Angeles Superior Court, Joe Gatto routinely updated his estate every few years since 1996. His last will from 2009 named his daughter Nicole as executor. But emails Joe wrote between July of 2013 and September of 2013, two months before his death, stated that he was reworking his estate plans after some soul-searching and wanted to make the changes before Nicole married her then-boyfriend, Mark Moreno. As reported in the Los Feliz Ledger in a July 22, 2013 email to his friend Al Jones, Joe Gatto wrote, It cost me $3,000 each time I have my trust updated. Just can't see me leaving anything to the pricks my daughter Nicole chooses to share her bed with from time to time. In his declaration, Mike Gatto said his father had notified Nicole of his intentions to alter his estate plan before his murder. Joe's brother, Frank, confirmed Joe's intentions to exclude Nicole from his estate. Interestingly, it was later discovered that numerous handwritten notes about Joe's estate were missing. A search for those pages turned up nothing. For months, Nicole's attorneys told her brother Mike that the missing pages could not be found because their father Joe was a pack rat. His house was filled with a lifetime of collections and keepsakes. In addition to the missing notes, Nicole changed the locks on her father's home shortly after his murder. Up until 2017, Mike Gatto, along with his sister Nicole, had been mostly banned from their father's house. It's unclear exactly why they weren't allowed at the house, but it's likely linked to the murder investigation that was going on at the time. Mike wrote repeatedly to Nicole's attorney over the years about the whereabouts of those missing notes. He also argued that being precluded from entering his childhood home didn't help matters. Mike questioned whether his sister was hoarding items out of spite or had possibly destroyed their father's handwritten notes about his estate. Mike made it clear that he was not accusing Nicole of murdering their father, but he believed that any additional notes written in his father's handwriting and the one found by his side at the time of his death were central to the criminal investigation. Initially, Nicole hired an outside search firm to locate the missing letters, but they never found anything. Later in 2014, however, Nicole found the letters scattered in her father's bedroom. It didn't matter, though. The letters, which were filled with rough notations, were deemed not to be legal documents, so they had no bearing on the estate. 
The breakdown in Nicole's relationship with her father appears to have started in the spring of 2013, when Joe became angry that Nicole had given a house key to her boyfriend, Mark, to watch Joe's house while he was away. According to a court filing, when Joe returned home, he became more upset when he found that an outdoor security light had been smashed. Joe claimed that Mark had accidentally broken the light with a fireplace poker, trying to fend off an alleged intruder. In his declaration, Mike Gatto stated that although his father's valuables had been left behind the night he was killed, the wooden file cabinet where Joe kept his paperwork had been broken into and presumably emptied. Interestingly, police told family members a fireplace poker had been used by the assailant to break into things located inside of Joe's home on the day he was murdered. Other emails confirm that Joe often used profanities to describe Nicole's boyfriend, Mark Moreno, making it clear that he was not fond of him. Mike's declaration cited an email his father wrote while at the height of his frustrations with Mark and Nicole's relationship. Joe wrote to Mike on September 22, 2013, Sooner or later, she will get upset with the boy toy. According to a 2019 article in the Los Feliz Ledger, on the day of his murder, Joe wrote an email to Mike that read, in part, Nicole and Mark used the handyman who did work for me, but since they no longer speak to me, I know if I asked them for his number, they would tell me to get fucked. Ironically, Nicole and Mark were married on the same day that Joe was killed. The ceremony was private and no family members attended. Joe and Nicole were not speaking at the time. A 2019 article in the Los Feliz Ledger reported that the couple said they wanted a small ceremony with only one witness and had plans to celebrate with friends and family later. During the investigation, detectives found a note that was left on Joe's desk. It was one of several Joe had written on a small notepad. Though it's unclear what the note said, theorists suspected that Nicole or Mark may have shot Joe before he had the chance to formally write her out of his will. However, police and family members refute this theory. Years went by and the investigation continued, but the longer an investigation goes without a resolution, the more difficult it becomes to solve. Nearly a decade has passed since Joe's murder, and the case, unfortunately, has gone cold. But the Gatto family has not given up hope, they believe Joe's killer is out there, and they are aching for justice. Joe never got to meet Mike's youngest child, Joseph, named after his grandfather. As reported in a 2017 CBS Los Angeles article, Mike Gatto says he can see his father in his son's eyes. Mike said, he's a terrific kid. I just wish my dad could have met him. Unfortunately, the Gatto family's fate is not a rare one. Experts estimate that the United States currently has 250,000 unsolved murders, a number that increases by about 6,000 each year. As unsolved cases stack up, resources for agencies with limited budgets are drained. In many ways, cold cases are a crisis situation. All unsolved homicides potentially have offenders who've never been apprehended, and history and research show that a violent offender will likely repeat crimes. Cities like Washington, D.C. have demonstrated how it pays to focus on cold cases. 
Within five years of creating a cold case squad, investigators from the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia had closed 160 homicide cases. The squad continues its dedicated work to this day. According to 2016 data from OJP's Bureau of Justice Statistics, the U.S. has nearly 18,000 law enforcement agencies, but only 7% have dedicated cold case units. It's unclear exactly how Joe's $1.7 million estate was dispersed after his death, but as of 2009, his will indicated that 60% of the estate, including his home, investments, three cars, various artwork, royalties on four published books, among other items, was to go to his daughter Mariana, and the other 40% would be split evenly between Mike and Nicole. Joe's Silver Lake home, where he tended to his garden, created artwork, and made so many memories, sat empty for four years after his death. In 2017, the home was sold to a husband and wife. Interestingly, the husband was an artist like Joe. Persons with information about Joe Gatto's murder are asked to call LAPD robbery homicide detectives Barry Tellis or Chris Gable at 213-486-5910 or 877-LAPD-247. Those who wish to remain anonymous can report information to Crime Stoppers at 800-222-TIPS. That's 800-222-8477. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to check out my newly revamped and upgraded Patreon perks. Murderish Behind the Mic Patreon membership is a great option for those who've listened to every episode of Murderish and don't want to wait for the next one to drop because bonus ad-free episodes are just one of the perks available for Murderish Behind the Mic patrons. Other perks include exclusive behind-the-scenes content from inside my podcast studio, live virtual meet-and-greets, ad-free episodes with bloopers, and merch packages. To sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic, visit Murderish.com or just go to Patreon.com and search for Murderish there. I want to say a big thank you to Barbara J for joining Murderish Behind the Mic. Thank you so much. Your support means a lot, and I'm looking forward to interacting with you on Patreon. Make sure you're subscribed to my other podcast, Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening now. There are quite a few episodes to binge. Do me the biggest favor and tell your friends about Murderish, and leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. To show your support, you can also just wear a murderish t-shirt while you're out and about. And trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Just go to murderish.com to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. Follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. I've been doing a lot of fun videos there. Murderish sound design and audio editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico Vitis of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Catherine Devine. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Sources for this episode include a 2022 interview with Mike Gatto, a 2022 interview with Jason Insuleko, Los Angeles County Superior Court documents from the Joseph Anthony Gatto Trust dated January 11, 2002, a 2015 article by Allison B. Cohen titled We the Italians, a 2019 U.S. Department of Justice article, a 2013 L.A. Times article, a 2017 ABC7 article, a 2017 CBS Los Angeles article, and a 2019 Los Feliz Ledger article by Allison B. Cohen.